Walking through uh, preparation with this passage tonight as we continue in Acts, uh, I stumbled across a legal concept, as we, I often do when I'm thinking about something. What I, 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 there's, there's something going on here, and, I, and you know what you do when, when, you, when you find yourself kind of thinking about something? Guess what you do? You Google it, right? So I Googled it. Um, two opposing laws. Google, bam. There it is. Conflict of laws. And then I clicked around a little bit more and I come up with choice of law. Okay? So here it is. I stumbled across this legal concept. Jeremy's going to laugh at me because he knows I'm not a lawyer. Jeremy's a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. And so he's probably going to say he doesn't know anything he's talking about. Well, he's right. But nonetheless, here's what choice of law is. Choice of law involves a conflict of laws when it is necessary to reconcile the differences between the laws of different legal jurisdictions, right? One jurisdiction has a law, and another jurisdiction has a law, and they are opposing one another. And now we've got a case that we need to come to an agreement, but we've got to apply the law. But which law? There's a conflict of law, and so now we need to make a choice of law. You follow me? No, but nonetheless, I'm going to assume you are. So today, we encounter in the book of Acts... In the ministry of the apostles, a conflict of laws. Second time, actually. Second time. A conflict of laws in the ministry of the apostles. Christ has commanded them repeatedly at the end of the Gospels, at the beginning of Acts, what? To go and tell the world about who He is and what He's done. And at the same time, the religious leaders of the day, the council, the big dogs who are in charge of Israel running things spiritually, they say, don't speak in the name of Jesus any longer. The conflict of law is going to demand a choice of law in the ministry of the apostles. What will they do? We know what they did the first time. What will they do this time as that conflict intensifies? How will they respond to the conflicting laws and the pressure that's associated with that. And I think as we turn there together, we've got to ask similar questions. We may not have the exact conflict and the exact kind of pressures that they had then, but nonetheless, pressure exists in this world for us to be silent. Pressure exists out there for us to not obey God. There are commands of culture that tell us to be silent, isn't there? And so what will we do? We want to interact with this so that we know as we are doing ministry and mission in this area, in this time, how we should respond to the conflict of law and what choice we make. Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through 42. And friends, if you came here tonight hoping that Mike was going to preach a short message, you probably shouldn't have come. But I'll do my best. Acts 5, 17. How do we respond to pressure, opposition, and conflict in what we are being told to do? Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy... They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, 
an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so that they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Amen to that. <clears throat> so, here's a shocker for all of us. And you correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding what's going on here. But not everyone is excited about what God is doing and saying to the world through the church. 
Now, you may say to yourself, that's pretty obvious, right? I mean, we've got empty chairs in the youth room, right? Not everybody's excited about what God is doing and, do, right, and, and actively pursuing through the ministry of a local church. That's what we see taking place here. Some are indifferent, sure. Some are annoyed, yes. And some are growing jealous of what they see. Right? I'm sure the people of the, of the church, the followers of Jesus, were very excited based on what Tim preached about last week. All the signs and the wonders and the miracles, the authentication of their message, all that God was doing in their lives, more and more added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. But not everybody was. right? The, the big guys, and I find this a little funny, the big guys are getting scared and threatened by the little guys. right? And this American economy, that's silly, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, is Wegmans really worried about Maisie's Meats? You know, right? What do you think, Dad? Do you think Danny Wegman's worried about Dave Maisie? I don't think so. Right? Like, Starbucks worried about Kubal? Yeah, maybe. Probably not. Uh, but so I find it interesting here that the big guys, right? The guys who've got history, they've got tradition, they've got, they've got an endowment, they, they, they're, they're running things. They're owning the building called Solomon's uh, Portico. They own the joint. They're running the temple system. And they're starting to get threatened and jealous by the little guy. Got to feel bad for him, right? Eh, not really. Nonetheless, you see that what's happening, right? In verse four, uh, 2 of chapter 4, if you turn back, our first time the, the, the apostles, Peter and John, are confronted, we see that, uh, verse 2, they were greatly annoyed. But we see the progression. As the ministry of the church continues to have great impact in and around Jerusalem, the, the response of the religious big dogs is intensifying. It's growing. It's no longer just annoyance and giggling and laughter. Ha, ha, ha. It's now growing into jealousy. They want what they've got. Right? The favor of the people. And so they're growing jealous. Uh, and so what they do, because they've got the power to do it, is they go and they send their, uh, you know, their, their buff dudes or guys that do CrossFit and Insanity and P90X. They say, hey, you guys, go get the, uh, uh, those, the apostles and put them in prison. So they do that. They, they get them and they put them into prison and then they go to bed. I find that interesting. Why is it that every time they arrest somebody, they, it's like night? Don't they do anything during the day? Right? Anyway, that's just a side comment. Don't you see it? Like, Jesus gets arrested, he puts it, then goes, they go to bed, and then the next morning, and then, anyway, you get my point. I'm not sure what's going on, but they put him into prison, uh, and then, then they go to bed. So what happens next is shocking, at least from a human perspective, right? What happens next as an angel of the Lord shows up? You can imagine how, how the apostles are feeling, right? They're, they're locked up in this nasty, uh, uh, just disgusting cell, they're not going anywhere tonight. They might as well just take a nap. Maybe they're praying. I don't know what they're doing. But you can imagine that they're not expecting to be getting out anytime soon. Right? They're figuring, this might be the end. This might be, this might be our, our, our life sentence. And so what happens is that during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors and brings them out. God miraculously shows up in the midst of their imprisonment 
in the midst of their uh, just being cast aside and put in this cell, God the Holy Spirit shows up. An angel of the Lord miraculously shows up and releases the apostles, and then he recommissions them. Look at what he says. So the angel of the Lord not only sets them free, but says, now go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That is, the thing that they were arrested for, doing signs and wonders, and telling the people, it's all because of Jesus that these things are taking place. Repent and believe in Him. The very thing that they were arrested for and put into prison for, the the, the angel of the Lord comes, sets them free to go do that very thing. That's radical for me. And I got to thinking about that, and I said to myself, is that not our story? Right? Is that not what God has done in our lives? Are we not people who are enslaved to our sin under the tyranny of the enemy known as Satan, sin, and death? And does not God show up in a miraculous way to set us free from that? And does not God show up in such a way not just to save us from something, a.k.a. death, sin, and His wrath, but does not God show us up for a very specific reason that he might do something not just in us and for us, but do something through us? Is that not what God has done in all of our lives, right? God's miracle in us serves God's mission through us. We've got to see that. I see God doing that in this text, and I got to thinking, is that not my life? Is that not what God did and continues to do? As He's setting me free from the tyranny of the enemy, is He not setting me free for the mission of the Lord? The call of God. That's what I see God doing here. We're not just saved from something, we're saved to it. God's miracle in us is serving as God's mission through us. And what do we see? Verse 21. When the people heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Yes, God is miraculously doing something in the lives of the apostles. He set them free. He sent them to their mission field to do exactly what they were arrested for doing. And yet what we see take place, and we can't miss it, is that they obey, don't they? When they heard this, when they heard the call, when God's command was clear as crystal, they did not shy away from walking in obedience. I think that gives us insight, again, into our story, into the nature of discipleship, into the nature of being a follower of Jesus. God shows up miraculously, sets us free, sends us on His mission, and we obediently walk in that. Right? God's people respond to God's call with faithful obedience. I think sometimes we have an obedience issue because we've lost connection to the miracle. We've lost connection to the grace and the power of the story and that undergirds that mission and that sending. We hear do, letting people know about Jesus as some new checkoff thing oh, that i got to do to be a part of the club. No, not the case. It's not just another thing to do in your busy week. Friends, this is the outflow. This is the response of God's miraculous work in our heart. 
to save us from sin. It's something that we're naturally going to do. God sets us free and now through us causes other people to hear about this life-changing, transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets them free. It's natural, supernatural, but yet natural response to what God has done. And although very much a command that God has given to us, isn't it? It's what we're called to do. It's consistent with what he's done, but we are called to do this, and that's exactly what the apostles do. They respond to God's call with faithful obedience. Next day here, the high priest comes, right? It's like the the whole get-up, right? Everyone's got their robes on. It's like convocation, right? Corey's ready to graduate. He's going to be bringing, he's going to be walking down Oswego, right? You're going to run the, you will never wear that green robe again. Gold this year? Right, we've lost ours. Doreen's like, where are they? I don't know where they are, right? You will never, but man, when graduation comes, all the big dogs, they put on their hats, they put on their garb, and they put on, they carry the scepter, right? That's what's happening, right? Convocation. The religious leaders are getting together. They're, they're, you know, they're blowing the trumpet. Everything's, everybody's coming together, all going to sit down. It's time to do some business with the apostles, right? So what happens? Well, they, they, they all sit down, the whole Senate, all the big dogs, Everyone that's got power, anyone that's wearing a ring, they're present. They're sitting there, right? They're, they're in the room. It's that big of a deal. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. They are confused as all get out. Because uh, they've lost something of incredible value, but they remember exactly where they put them. There's absolutely no sign of escape, right? Reminds me of when I lose my keys. Now, granted, their lives, my keys, probably not a perfect correlation. But when I, I, I lose my keys often, because we're always switching keys. we got this key fob and that key fob. Where's yours? I don't know. Take mine. Next thing I know, you know, I'm changing this coat to that coat. Where are the keys? Nobody knows. But when we lose something of great value, especially when it's time to go somewhere... And we're late. Man, we're pulling out all the stops. First thing I always do is interview all parties present. Right? Hey, Silas, you see my keys? No, Daddy. Annika, I know you like to take my key. Where'd you put my keys? You put them under the couch again? No, Daddy. Right? You, you begin to interview all parties present. Doreen, which purse are they in? Right? That, am I the only weirdo? Is this what we do? We begin to interview people. Hey, you see my keys, right? Then we begin to pull the couch cushions. Where are we? Look in all the possible places where they could be. I can't imagine what these guys were going through. So they get down there. They're, they're scratching their heads. and say, you know, I, I know we put these guys in stall 17, right? What, hey, you know, uh, Judah, where, where'd you put them? Did you put them in 17, right? 17? Yeah, 17, right? They can't find them. They're looking all over the place. Maybe, maybe they close the door, and maybe they go, maybe we just check again. right? They go back in, they look around. Nope, they're not here. They interview the guards. You must have let them out. No, we didn't do that, man. We were standing here all night. None of us slept. We were on our A game. Where are they? They have zero idea. They've lost something of incredible value. And they're asking the question, right? What's going to come of this? They're actually less concerned about how it happened. Right? It doesn't matter anymore. 
It doesn't matter how we lost them. It doesn't matter. What's going to happen if I don't find my keys? Will I miss the meeting? Right? Am I going to lose my job? I think these guys are wondering what's going to come of this because they recognize that they're the worker bees for the big dogs. And if they mess up with the big dogs and they lose the apostles, man, their job's on the line. So much for the 401k, the pension's gone. You get the idea. What's going to come of this? What's happening? And of course, I think the, the divine author who's writing this it wants to tell us more about what's going to come of this. But nonetheless, they're trying to figure out what's going on. They don't know. Am I losing my job? Guess I'm not getting that bonus this year. Right? So they've lost the apostles. They don't know. They're greatly perplexed. They're wondering what's going to go on. And in the moment of their perplexity, somebody runs into the room and says, Look! Points the finger. There they are. The people that you put into prison, the apostles, guess where they are? They're in the temple and they're preaching and teaching to the people. Crazy. Right? And so the captain, the officers, they go and they bring them back in. But under different circumstances, right? They're not being brought by force. Because not only are they jealous of the apostles, but because of their favor, they're also kind of afraid of the people. Do you see the the emotion, what's going on with the, with the religious leaders. They're, they're jealous of the apostles. They're uh, afraid of the people. They don't want to mess with the people. They want to get stoned. So calmly, hey, hey, you know, no fights here today. Let's just, let's just go have a chat. Let's just go talk. No fists, no guns, no swords. Let's, let's go have a talk. So they go. The apostles submit to that. They know God is active in all of this, right? When you know God is active in this, you're not shying away from it. You're not hiding. You're not playing hide and seek. You're not running away to another foreign land to get away from all the the pressure and the hostility because you know God is active in this. There's no need to run. And really, if an angel of the Lord can show up and set you free from prison, you're probably not going to try to run from that angel of the Lord, right? Jonah did that, and he you know, was in a fish for three days. God's in it. God's actively involved in it. You don't need to run from it. And so they submit to it. They're probably wondering too, what is going to come of this? What is God doing? What specific purpose, what specific plan is He now unfolding in this situation? Well, we see what happened. God's people continue to respond with faithful obedience and they submit to the process of what's taking place. So they bring them in. They set them before the council. The high priest questions them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you've intended to bring this man's blood upon us. It's kind of like, you know, what did I tell you? Don't you remember? Like when I look at my kids... And I tell them specifically to not slam the door. For whatever reason, those three go upstairs and they play together. Somehow the the doors slam constantly. Don't understand it. It's always Silas. But nonetheless, he's just slamming the doors all the time. He's Silas, don't slam the doors. Okay, Daddy. You know, five minutes later, wham, slam the door. And you go up and you say, Silas, what did I tell you? Not to slam the door, right? Yeah, don't slam the door. 
right? Disobedience. That's kind of what I see taking place here. If you go back to 4.18, the first time, what do they say? So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. It was clear as day. The Jews, the religious leaders, did not want the apostles, did not want anyone for that matter, uh, spreading any word about this Jesus that is now the source of all this, these signs and wonders. They don't want that message out. And so they're saying, what, what did I tell you? Right? We told you specifically to not do that. Yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Right? What's happening is all these people from all the surrounding areas are hearing about this through their teaching. And so they're coming, right, as Tim talked about last week, and they're bringing the sick. And so this whole little thing called Christianity is springing up through all these signs and wonders and clarification, proclamation. Right? These, it's not just miracles. It's this is why this is happening. This is the miracle that's taking place. And so the teaching... Not just the signs and wonders are being emphasized here. This is filling the area. And I would love for the ministry of Renovation Church, as small as it is, right? Let's, but in the context of the larger body of Christ, if the church of Jesus Christ in the northern suburbs could fill this area with teaching about Jesus, could we do that? Could that not be our vision? Could that not be our call? Could that not be our ambition to see what we're doing here as, as new and, and, and exciting as it is to us? Could that not be, be overflowing into this community? And could we not fill these suburbs, these five zip codes, with teaching and preaching about Jesus? I think that's what God's calling us to do. But nonetheless, these people don't want that. They understand that to silence the people of God is to stifle the mission of God. Right? You silence it, you stifle it. And I love this statement. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. You want to blame us for killing that guy. Right? Their message has been consistently, hey, the, the, God raised up Jesus whom you killed. Go back. Turn back. The people, or, or the apostles, are unashamed and uh, are not shying away from the reality that sinful people are the reason why Jesus hung on the cross. It wasn't any sin in Jesus, amen? Jesus did not die because He was, a, in fact, a criminal. Jesus did not die because of His own sin. Jesus did not die because of the things that He did. No, He died because of the sins that we commit. They did not shy away from that. That sin is what killed Jesus. And their sin too. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. They did not shy away from that. And I find it interesting that they're saying, you want to put His blood on us, when in Matthew 27, 25, guess what they said? As Pilate washes his hands and says, His blood upon you. What do they say? They cry out, His blood be upon us and our children. Do you remember that? Interesting to me. Ironic. They're the ones that admitted publicly in the face of the crucifixion, eyewitnesses, that His blood is on us. His blood is on us. 
So there it is. Round two. Clear law. This is it. Don't speak in his name. We told you it once. We're telling you again. And what, do, uh, what does uh, Peter and the apostles say? A statement that we must grapple with. And I've got to speed up this message. First of all, it's this. We must obey God rather than men. Can enough be said about that one statement? We must obey God rather than men. Let it sink. Conflict of laws. We must obey God rather than men. This statement is driven by necessity. Don't miss that either. This is not a matter of optional convenience. This is a matter of ultimate necessity. And they recognize that. We must obey God rather than men. For God's people, faithful obedience is, not, is a matter of absolute necessity. It is not a matter of optional convenience. They see that. Right? Do we? As we think about what God has called us to do, would we respond to hostility? Would we respond to an authority Whatever it is, would we respond to a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, our boss, anyone in this world that says, enough, don't talk about Jesus ever. Would you respond by saying, okay, I respect that. And sometimes our, our witness does need to be patient, it needs to be sensitive, and sometimes our witness does need to be about li uh, listening. So don't mishear me tonight. But would we respond to a world and a culture and a legal system that says, shut up, would we respond by saying, we must obey God rather than men? Would we be crystal clear on our calling and would we be deeply connected to our calling in such a way that no matter who says to shut up, we would say, we must obey God rather than men? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. To reach every man, woman, and child in these suburbs, our hearts, our heads, our hands must be firmly fastened to the call of our Lord. We must realize that we must. But that's it. Some would say, well, you really want to inspire people and you want to tell them they want to. This is a command. It's an imperative. We must obey God rather than men. Right? Mission is not a menu for us to choose as we please. It's a divine edict for us to obey. It's not a menu. We like that. We like options. Well, I'll go pumpkin spice tonight. You know, tomorrow I'll go, you know, peppermint mocha. Mission is not a menu. It's a divine edict. Seeing it as a matter of absolute necessity, i got to think, is based upon a few things. Why would they think it's so necessary? Well, I think, first of all, it's obvious that they're seeing it as necessity is based upon their heart that is submitted to divine authority. I'm going to just go, are you a person that is postured toward your Lord in such a way that you are increasingly submitted to His divine authority over every aspect of your lives. They say we must because they have hearts that are fully submitted. Are we? 
Are we submitted to the Lord? Whatever God tells us to do, we're going to do because of simply the authority that is inherently in who He is. I see that. They understand that, yes, there is a kingdom. There are some authorities at place. And we need to submit to our authorities. Scripture talks about that. But when there's a conflict of this jurisdiction, this small jurisdiction, in comparison to the kingdom of God, which is a universal and absolute jurisdiction, we submit to that authority. That trumps that. Second, I think that their necessity also comes out of their Christ-centered identity. Look at what they go on to say. We must obey a God rather than men because we're submitted, but also because we are witnesses to what God has done in the world and in our lives. God raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed, and God has exalted Him. We're witnesses of these things. They know who they are, and they know that who they are is based upon what God has done in Jesus, in His resurrection from the dead, and His exaltation to the the right hand of the Father. Again, I want to ask you the question. Do you see your identity in light of that? It's... When somebody asks you who you are, are you going to talk about Jesus at all? Are you trying to be a follower of Jesus, therefore you're going to do a bunch of things to be that someday? Or are you a follower of Jesus based on what God has done in the resurrection and the exaltation, the application of those events to your life, and now this is now who you are. You've been changed. You've been raised from the dead. Right? You, you, uh, Colossians 3 talks about our life being with Christ where He is, seated at the right hand. Their Christ-centered identity and the witness of what God has done is shaping their understanding of absolute necessity that we must obey God rather than men. And I also see that they see that necessity based on both divine activity and human instrumentality. All I'm saying is this. We must obey God because this is how God is, what? Spreading His kingdom into all the earth. How has God chosen to reach the world? We talk about it all the time. Through His people. Right? So if we don't, if the people of God reject the call of God, how will they hear? Right? Their understanding, we must obey God rather than men, is driven by their knowledge that Jesus, despite our confusion about it, has chosen people like them, people like us, to bring the mission to the world. And I look in the mirror every day and I say, why me, Lord? I don't understand. You probably do similar things. I, I, I don't know. I don't have a great testimony. I don't have this thing. I don't have that gift. Why would God choose me considering all the sins that I've committed? Why would He send me to that job considering all the inadequacies that I have? I don't understand it. It's just divine sovereignty. It's what God does. And He's chosen to to what? Use the people of God to carry out the message of God in the world. We've got to grab onto that understanding. Yes, it is God the Holy Spirit. Amen? Right? God is, it is the Holy Spirit that is active in the world. God has poured Him out. Right? Don't do anything until you receive the Spirit. Because without the Spirit, you can't do anything with the mission. But the Spirit has come and indwelt the people of God and now is empowering the people of God to carry out the mission. And if we are not obeying, guess what? The world is not hearing. 
It's necessity. If I don't look at Eric, you know, whatever, it's got to be somebody else. It can't just be, you know, nothing. It's God's choice. It's his plan. It's how he's chosen to get it out into the world. The bottom line is this, friends. What we see here is that God's people obey God's commands no matter how intense the pressure to do otherwise. Okay? What a bold statement. Now, our pressures are different, aren't they? Can we, we praise God for the country we live in? I think we can praise God for all the... Right? It's okay to praise God for, for where we are in the place that he's, He has us. Not at the expense of the world, but nonetheless, we're grateful for the place that we have. We have a unique opportunity. There is zero legal pressure for us to not proclaim the gospel. Let that set in. They're having legal pressure. If you do this, you're toast, basically. We have zero legal pressure to proclaim the gospel. Now, some of you are saying, well, actually, last month there was... Okay, it might be increasing. Nonetheless, for the most part, we have a, a, a complete religious freedom to proclaim Jesus to the world, right? But we have other pressures. Most, I would say, are self-inflicted. Yes, the relational pressure, like they don't want to hear it anymore, so you go, well, i got to figure that out. Or maybe the job says, hey, you can't really do that here. You say, okay, how am I going to navigate through that issue? But most of the pressure that we face isn't not based on our own self-inflicted pressures like fear. I'm scared. I won't say the right thing. We talk ourselves out of it nine times out of ten, don't we? Man, I've been busy. Man, I got, I got this going on, I got that going on, right? That's self-inflicted. There's no margin in our lives for mission. It's pressure to not proclaim the gospel. But it's not the same as this. It's not legal pressure. Our lives are not currently in danger because of our proclaiming of the gospel, at least in Liverpool. Right? Baldensville, Clay, whatever. But whatever the pressure may be, God's people respond to God's call with faithful obedience, no matter how intense the pressure to do otherwise. That's what we see taking place. It's the sequel of chapter 4 into chapter 5. This is exactly what is happening. And you know what? Again, it sounds exciting. It might be inspiring to us, but it is not exciting. It is not inspiring to the religious leaders, is it? Basically, they get furious. And I can't imagine what their eyes look like, flaming fire, looking at the apostles, when they literally, the text says, wanted to kill them. Their initial response, their, their gut response, in the face of hearing the gospel, is, I want to kill them. And I know that often when you talk about Jesus, there is intense hostility coming back at you for what you've just said. It's a reality in which we live. Not everyone's excited. Not everyone wants to hear it. But that does not change the call of God upon our lives to be faithful, sensitive, contextual proclaimers of the gospel to people that need to hear it. To every man, woman, and child. Amen? But then they consult with Gamaliel. Gamaliel walks through. He says, hey, listen. 
let's not get all crazy here, right? Settle down. Whoa. <laughs> Put the guns away, right? Let's think about this. Let's look at this from a historical perspective. Remember uh, uh, Thutis and remember uh, th- that other guy, whatever his name was? Hey, uh, remember, they, they thought they were something, and in the end they turned out to be nothing, and all their people scattered. So, well, let me just let it go. Let it be. If, bottom line, if, if, you're, if these people, if this is not of God, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you can't stop it. In a matter of fact, if it's God, you're actually now actively opposing Him. And many people in the world are doing that. Actively opposing the work of God because of their anger, their jealousy, their frustration, their rejection of the gospel. So they take his advice. They calm down. They put their guns away. And they say, all right, we're not going to kill him. They call him back in. And the text says that they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Don't miss that. They beat them. We could, we could just walk over that. You know, this is intense persecution. This involves physical pain. This hurt. This was, uh, uh, it was a, a, a kick in the pants, if you will, of their idol of comfort. And we have that. There's nothing comfortable and nice about this. They were beaten. Physically beaten. And then they were warned. Don't do this. We told you once. We're telling you again. Our decision is that you are not to speak anymore in this name. And they sent him out. And again, we're shocked by the angels showing up and doing a miraculous thing like letting the prisoners go in a way that is completely unexplainable. That's shocking. But yet we come to the next verse and we see the most shocking thing of all, especially as we interact with it as American consumerists, right? Those who are comfortable, those who are relaxed, those that think that we can get Jesus and Christianity and that whole thing and the blessings of the life to come, and those who think that we're going to get all the success and the joy and the temporal blessing of this day, we start to go, now wait a minute, what? Look at what the text says, verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I gotta be honest with you, I'm having a hard time applying that right now to my life. Let me just, I'm having a hard time with that one. I'm having a hard time saying, that's my heart. I would be rejoicing if I was to suffer physical beating and beyond for the name. But that again gives us insight into the nature of discipleship, isn't it? These early Christians. Are, are, yes, informing our mission, but they're also informing our understanding of what God has done in us and how He's radically transformed all of us, including our affections. Discipleship is about submission to God's commands, amen to that, but it is also about satisfaction with God's Son. Why would they be leaving this place rejoicing, excited, as if the Steelers won the Super Bowl. 
Drop that one in. All excited, running out, cheering, getting all pumped up about suffering. What is going on? Tells us again about discipleship. It's not just about submission. It is. But it's about satisfaction. Right? This is about union. It's about union with Jesus. I thought about Philippians 3, where Paul is saying, I just want to know Christ. And when he's talking about knowledge, he's not talking about academic knowledge, right? He's talking about knowledge. Like, I know Jesus, and I want to know Him more. I want to know the power of His resurrection, right? And what does he go on to say? He's like, I want to participate. I want to share in what? His... Christians up in this mug? I want to share in His suffering. You know the verse. I want to share in it. I want fellowship with Jesus. I want to know Him. Not just in all the exciting things, quote unquote, but in His suffering. I want to know Jesus that way. And if I know Jesus that way, man, will I ever be full of joy and satisfaction in my heart. Man, that's what I want. I want to know Jesus. All of Him. I want to have fellowship with His suffering. That's what I see here. The shock comes from the idea that they're satisfied more in union with Jesus than they are about their own comfort and the acceptance of the world. Is that you? Am I harping? I feel like I'm beginning to harp tonight. I apologize sincerely if I'm harping. But oh, I don't just want us to be submitted to mission. I don't just want us to be obeying the great... Hey, obey the great commission. Do what God says, renovation. Oh, that's going to be the outflow again of what God has done in us through Jesus. It's going to be about what He's done, right? God raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted Him to the right hand of the Father. And man, it's going to be an outflow of our satisfaction with nothing else, nothing comparatively else anyway, with, except with the satisfaction that we have with Jesus. We just want to know Jesus. Even if it means we get to share in His suffering. I want in on that. I want to know Jesus. Is that you? Is that me? That our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction is in Jesus. There's a Christmas thought for you. It's the greatest gift Getting old, wrapped in the same paper, same story, same manger, no room in the inn, same Jesus is the reason for the season. Or is this season so wonderful still? Not because of the iPad, right? Not because of the 50 inch flat screen, but because of Jesus, the Savior. The leader who comes to give repentance and forgiveness of sin, right? Why did God do what He did in Jesus? To carry out divine intentions of grace in the lives of people. Why is He wanting us to be on mission in the world so that He could carry out the, the intentions of divine grace in the lives of people? To turn them from their sin and to have them walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Is that your greatest joy today? 
I didn't read Piper's sermon, but it's starting to sound like Piper's sermon. Isn't it? Got to love that about John Piper. Supremacy of God. Satisfaction in Jesus. What else is there? Let us be that church. God's people respond to God's call with faithful obedience. No matter how intense the pressure to do otherwise. Because they're submitted to their Lord and they're satisfied in their Savior. They're willing even and excited even to suffer whatever God would have them to know Him. Again, apostles are confronted with the choice of law, aren't they? What are they going to do? Verse 42 tells us every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Is that not what we're trying to do? Every day, not just Sundays, every day, right? From house to house, not just at the service, house to house, missional communities, your own hospitality. What are we doing together, people? Refusing a holy stubbornness, a resolve in the face of resistance that says, yep, I'm going to preach and teach about Jesus to everyone I come into contact with. I must obey God rather than men. Conflict of laws. Their choice of law is a submit to Jesus. And again, we don't have that struggle per se. But soon we may. My lifetime, maybe. Yours, maybe. Silas's, Annika's, Lisa's, maybe. Recent article in, uh, on foxnews.com. Google. Just saying. Talks about the Pentagon and proselytizing. I bet you Ryan knows about this. Air Force regulations, actually. There's an association called the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. It's calling on the Air Force to enforce a regulation that they believe calls for the court-martial of any service member caught in proselytizing. The president of said foundation and others from his organization met privately with the Pentagon officials on April 23rd of this year. He said, that guy, not the Pentagon, U.S. troops who proselytize are guilty of sedition and treason and should be punished by the hundreds if necessary to stave off what he called a tidal wave of fundamentalism. Again, it's not necessarily an applicable law to us today. And proselytizing is just simply telling others about Jesus, friends. Sharing in your My Circle challenge. We're not there. We may not be there for a long time. Maybe we'll never get there. But we just might get there, won't we? Could we? And I want every one of us in this room to say, now, before it happens, we must obey God rather than men. God's people obey God's call. 
Obey God's commands with faithful obedience, right? That's how they respond to it. No matter how intense the pressure, legal, relational, personal, situational, you name the inults, whatever that is, no matter how intense the pressure to do otherwise. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm grateful for the work of the Spirit that has much to say to us in all of the Scriptures, and yet uniquely tonight. God, I pray that we would have crystal clear clarity on what You've called us to do. Jesus was pretty clear. Make disciples. Preach the Gospel. As the Father sent me, so do I send you. You are my witnesses. This is what you've called us to do. This is who we are. It's crystal clear. The only ambiguity is how we're going to respond. May we we be faithful to obeying your command because our heart is submitted to you. We see the necessity of it because we recognize that we are your chosen instrument. As, As goofy and confusing as that sounds, considering our inadequacies and sins, We are your chosen instrument in this time, in this place. Lord, I pray that all that flows out of an unshakable satisfaction in Jesus. Take the world and give me Jesus. May that be our song. We ask this in Jesus' name.